Welcome to the Inclubi Movie Podcast, where we talk about all things media and diversity. I'm Matthew Stiuso. And I'm Dara Eliezer. For today's podcast, we're going to be discussing representation in coming-of-age films. But before that, we're going to get into our pop culture moment and talk about what's new and trending in entertainment. Well, our last podcast, we talked about the Golden Globe's historic nominees for Best Director, with Regina King, Chloe Zhao, and Emerald Fennell all being nominated. And this week, we are proud to announce the winner is... Chloe Zhao, making her the first Asian woman to win in this category. Congrats to Chloe. Proud she's getting her accolades. Also... Um, Ray and the Last Dragon, starring Kelly Marie Tran, premiered on Disney Plus this past weekend. So this makes Rhea Disney's first Southeast Asian princess. Although this is monumental, we do want to bring attention to the fact that aside from Tran, most of the actors are actually of East Asian descent. So while we're happy that Disney is making strides in Asian representation on screen, we hope that in the future it'll be reflected in production as well. Absolutely. It's important to have representation on and off screen to make sure that the production is as authentic as possible. And that actually leads into our topic, where we're going to be talking about representation in coming-of-age films. Coming-of-age is a genre of film, as well as television and literature, that focuses on the main character's transition from youth to adulthood. The genre has been around as long as stories have been told, and tend to focus on character and emotion. Some of the popular themes and topics often explored in Coming of Age include love, loss, sexuality, self-image, being misunderstood, and the preservation, lack of, or loss of innocence. The Coming of Age genre is most successful when they tell stories that audiences are able to see themselves in. There's something really powerful and nostalgic in the tone, and it feels so emotional to actually be understood. Yep, the biggest thing about the genre is that it's mostly characterized and judged in terms of how relatable it is and any universal truths it can tell. A coming-of-age story can be said in any sort of reality, whether it be real-life, fantasy, or science fiction. The genre is filled with a large variety of stories, from Stand By Me to Spirited Away. However, Many amazing films and shows depicting LGBTQIA+, or POC stories, are often overlooked by audiences and critics alike in favor of traditional straight white stories. Of course, there are a few notable exceptions. Moonlight is one of the best coming-of-age films, and it tells a queer black story, but that's definitely more the exception than the rule. It almost feels like if you're going to tell a story outside the societal norm, then it has to be like so excellent to be among the classics. And Moonlight truly is an excellent film. The visuals, the acting, the cinematography are all firing on all cylinders in that movie. There's not a single shot wasted. It's like being held to a higher standard as a movie. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of pressure to have these perfect stories in order to be taken seriously when it's outside of, you know, the norm that Hollywood has kind of created. And the films with the most notoriety within the coming-of-age genre tend to be very you know, like white gazy, male focused and definitely not LGBTQ inclusive. Uh, Even statistically, when it came to major studio motion pictures in 2019, racial minorities only made up 28% of film leads, 13% of writers and 15% of directors. And like, 
The numbers have a lot to do with opportunity and who's getting access to tell the stories that they want to tell. Like the talent is definitely there, but it's so hard to to break into an industry where it's like so tightly guarded and built to serve that that Hollywood gaze. Yeah. And and despite there being so much room for stories to be represented, I think a lot of the various stories and diversity already present within the genre get too often overlooked. Like, yes, the whole <laughs> industry is whitewashed. <laughs> and of course, we could literally have this conversation about any film category. But I think with the genre like coming of age, one that's literally about growing up, which is something that we all do, I think it has the easiest access point for representation of all types. And, like, I agree with you, too, Matt, because Moonlight is a great film, and I would hate for it to be used as a token or an excuse to not be inclusive just because it's so good and highly regarded. Yeah, if anything, the success of Moonlight should be an indicator that we need more of those stories. It doesn't have to be the only one just because it did such a good job. Right, exactly. So today, we not only want to analyze why some of these stories don't get the recognition they deserve, but also take time to really highlight a lot of the great gems. To start us off, I did want to bring up something that I thought was um, really relevant and quite recent example of the type of erasure that we're kind of talking about that's outside of like that Hollywood mm-hmm. norm. Um, back in 2017, 2018-ish, um, Lady Bird got a lot of backlash for um, being pretty much a whitewashed version of Real Women Have Curves. Um, One of the articles I had read at the time um, was in Marie Claire, and it was called Lady Bird was influenced by real women have curves and no one outside the Latinx community is talking about it. And I just basically said that, you know, we should rightfully give real women have curves their flowers because it's the blueprint, you know? Um, And it had opened my eyes a bit because I was like, I love both films and I do definitely see the similarities because it features um young angsty women they have complex relationships with their mother they're driven outspoken experiencing relationships um their families aren't well off or anything like that and they're trying to you know go to college in a big city and they're not like the same film because um real women have curves uh the main character anna um has other things to deal with like working in her sister's factory or just like learning to value her body and Mm self-image despite being raised to feel, you know, ashamed of it. And, you know, Lady Bird has other arcs, like, showing her experience in Catholic school and just, like, her, like, trying to hide where she came from. You know, stuff like that. So, like, while they're not the same film, I do think it is very interesting and, quite frankly, unfair that Lady Bird gets to be helmed as this, you know, refreshing, relatable, universal story that really speaks to a lot of female experiences, but... A film like A Real Woman Have Curves, um, something that explored a lot of the same themes as Lady Bird, doesn't get, you know, the acclaim or like, you know, the wider audience because it stars, you know, a Mexican-American main mm-hmm. character and her cultural experiences. And I feel like that sucks because it really is an awesome film and it does matter to a whole community of people, but it's just, you know, not highly regarded as Lady Bird in the wider conversation. Yeah, and that's so strange to me. I felt like a lot of people when Lady Bird came out were saying, oh, I finally feel represented. But Real Women Have Curves tells a very universal experiences 
through the lens of being a Latinx main character. So, like, I could never 100% relate to Anna, obviously, because I'm not a Latina woman, but I can relate to mm-hmm. the conversations around body image or that feeling of wanting to leave a small town and go to college in a big city because that was an experience from that I had and I felt really accurately represented by the movie there. So, mm-hmm. if, like, whether or not something is relatable is completely su- subjective. So I always find it interesting when someone flat out says this movie wasn't relatable because it just means that you didn't relate to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone else might not have. It really calls into question for me also whether or not relatability is actually a measure of something being bad or good. Cause I find it really ironic the way that people sort of pick and choose what they consider to be representative. 13 going on 30, for example, is a very iconic coming of age movie. But if you can relate to the experience of suddenly becoming an adult, through magic, <laughs> you can relate to real women have curves despite her being Latina. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. And the problem is like choosing to overlook things because you just feel like it doesn't serve you. Mm-hmm. There's even been a few studies regarding uh, the racial empathy gap, specifically one where white participants were monitored and their mental stimulation decreased when they watched non-white participants perform tasks versus, you know, when white people did it. Um, And they pretty much lost interest when it didn't affect them or reflect their own image. And I think that the whole relatability thing can be sort of a scapegoat just to say, like, this doesn't apply to me, so I won't watch it, and it's not going to be a universal story because it's a very different thing than what I experience, you know? And I feel like even when there's popular films that like a lot of people have seen like a lot of people seen boys in the hood a lot of people seen Akilah and the bee and then you know a lot of people have seen joy luck club um but it becomes like these films are very specific stories that you know don't get regarded as coming of age yeah but like you know a film can be enjoyed even if you don't relate to it and you know there isn't just one way to come of age and i think it's you know, important to normalize stories of different experiences, cultures, and backgrounds because it's always going to seem foreign or like other if you're not exposed to it. And the more diversity, you know, we surround ourselves with, you know, there's always going to be something to learn or experience from a story, regardless if it mirrors your your story or not. Yeah. Like, whether or not you are a huge film fan or not, it's impossible to really deny the influence that pop culture has on our culture. And I know a lot of people say, oh, I don't really follow that. Like, I, that doesn't really pertain to me, but. It matters. It matters. Yeah. I mean, especially for us in this generation, we experience things in such a way because they trend on social media and suddenly everyone's talking about it. There's also a lot of nuance to how the industry can influence our culture. If you go back, mm-hmm. there is a link to the release of the film Bambi and a massive decline in hunting the year that it came out. <laughs> and that's iconic. <laughs> that it is iconic. And it's actually funny because Bambi <laughs> is kind of a coming of age movie when you really think about it. So the fact that people could empath could empathize with a deer from an animated movie <laughs> means that they can certainly do the same for a person of color if the story is being told in a in a good way. It's really crucial when there is representation too that it's not tokenism or perpetuating any negative stereotypes. 
You know, we want complex character arcs. We want emotional journeys. We want character background. We don't want to just be sidekicks. You know, no more Dion Davenport. She、uh-huh. needs her own story. And <laughs> I've had such a weird experience with the movie Call Me by Your Name because everyone was assuring me that I would love it so much as a gay person because it's sort of this is the biggest coming of age story about a gay teenager maybe that's ever been made, and it has movie stars and Oscar buzz. And I saw it and I was so uncomfortable. And、mm-hmm. it felt like I've been waiting all my life for this big gay film, and it's depicting pedophilia, and it's such a romanticized take on it. And I was like, this is not the image that I want to be associated with. If you're going to make a hard hitting film about the dangers of queer youth being preyed on by older men, like that is definitely one film that you can make. Or you could also make a film about a younger queer person pining after. Someone that they see is more mature and charismatic because that's true to life, also. But、mm-hmm. to depict pederasty is such a problem, and it's not empathetic. And I just feel like it makes gay culture look bad, and that's not what I want out of a movie that's supposed to represent us. Yeah, I like that you brought up that experience because、oh, I feel、you. like it brings up some other. <laughs> it brings up some other points, like. Um, one thing I'll always stress is quality and quantity, but mostly quantity, <laughs> because you know everything doesn't have to be perfect.、Um, if that happens to be one depiction of a person's story, but because representation is scarce and many times problematic, <laughs> it does become the thing people affiliate you with because that's all they know. And in this instance, like you said. There are more realistic and careful ways to depict things that do happen in real life, but you know, to have such a romanticized depiction out there, especially when you know being predatory or like being pedos is like a big thing, and many people try to prescribe and demonize the LGBT community. Yeah,、with. it's like it's really irresponsible, you know. And you know, alas, others aren't thinking about it、um, as much because it doesn't really affect them. And it goes with this quote that Laverne Cox had said in Disclosure, where she was like, you know, if you're a person of color, LGBTQ person, a person who's an immigrant, person with a disability, um, like any of that, you you develop a critical awareness because you understand that the images you're seeing, like the ones that you're seeing, that's not your life. And I can agree with you because my main critique with Call Me by Your Name was that I wished it was, you know, framed solely. On Elio's experience and his point of view of discovering himself,、um, you know their love, their interactions, because those are the strongest and best points of the story. Yeah. Instead of it being marketed as this, you know, mutual romantic love story, you know, yeah, yeah, like that's not what very, it is. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, and even at the same time, it's like you know, you don't want these stories to flop because you know I don't want Hollywood to think that you know like. Gay characters aren't marketable, especially if they're not, you know, palatable. I know that's what's so scary about it. And let me also say, if you have not seen Disclosure, watch Disclosure. It's not a coming of age movie, but it's a fantastic documentary on the trans experience in relation to Hollywood.、Um, mm-hmm. Now, what you were saying about marketability is something that's very pertinent because I feel like for so long Hollywood was operating under the assumption that there was. No demand or interest in seeing underrepresented stories on the big screen, as if it's like a very niche market of queer people or people of color. Like we don't make up a large portion of the population. 
it's this weird excuse <laughs> that they make, like, oh, well, there's never been a major gay box office success before, but that's because no one has really decided to invest in making one. And the reason that no one has decided to invest in making one is because there's been no precedent for them to succeed. So you're waiting for someone to kind of break into that category. And you see with a movie like Love, Simon, where celebrities were buying out movie theaters so that young queer people could see it, and it's inspired a spinoff series on Hulu, and it's, you know, it did great critically and commercially, and Hollywood's like, oh my gosh, I guess there is interest in seeing these kind of movies after all. (laughs) And it's funny because I find Love, Simon kind of corny. Um, but it's cute. And when you really think about it, if someone who doesn't understand gay culture or or has not really experienced gay people in their life can see a movie like that and learn something and then realize, well, my experience isn't too different from Simon's, even though I may not necessarily identify the same way. That's really monumental, even if it is corny. Mm -hmm. So even though Love, Simon isn't the first gay coming of age film, but Love, Simon was released by a major studio and it had such a huge marketing campaign. I mean, I still, it's kind of burned into my brain when all the signs were up all over Chicago. Um, <laughs> and yeah. it was it was nice that they were giving us the amount of attention that I feel like gay stories deserve. I think that's a really great point. And I think we've come quite a long way where we can really show that the interest is there. And, you know, has always been. And we can be very demanding of what we want. You have things like Black Panther, you know, being in the top 10 highest gross films of all time. Mm-hmm. And you have, like, Crazy Rich Asians doing groundbreaking numbers while being an English-language Hollywood blockbuster with all Asian leads, you know? That's something that we hadn't seen since Joy Luck Club, which came out, like, over two decades ago. Yeah. So, like... All of this doesn't mean, like, you know, we won, film industry is diverse, racism is over, child. Like, you know, like, homophobia dead, <laughs> homophobia transphobia is dead. disappeared, yeah. <laughs> is dead. No, like, that 100% does not mean that. But I think it does, like, you know, clearly exemplify that these are the things a lot of people are interested in. And I think an even more fitting example, we can talk about the uh, success of the To All the Boys franchise. Yes. Wow. I would categorize that as more like a teen romance, but like it's still something that, you know, showcases a young adult and has become like a modern rom-com classic. Mm -hmm. Um, Netflix, who doesn't even like to reveal numbers, had admitted that the first movie alone is one of their most watched titles ever. And in 2018, it had around like 80 million viewers tuned in for it. So like we didn't need a white lead for this story to be great. And a lot of people find representation within it, which is beautiful. I think as viewers, we do have to be good allies and, you know, help demand a lot of change. Um, We should definitely continue to uplift creators of various identities and, you know, take the time to look at more independent work and go outside of Hollywood sometimes, too. Mm -hmm. You know, make sure we're looking at make sure we're looking at films from other countries and other languages and, you know, include more than just, you know, the American perspective. As viewers, I think we should also realize that people aren't monolithic and just because there is a prominent story about an identity or community that speaks to a lot of people, you know, it doesn't mean that it has to be the sole representation. So overall, I think we just need to support and pay attention 
and the more we do that the better we can be at rearranging you know what the hollywood norm is or like basically getting rid of the norm itself for the last part of our podcast we want to highlight some really excellent coming of age films that are often overlooked one I want to start with, The Edge of Seventeen is a 90s film about a young gay teen who's struggling with coming to terms with his sexuality in the last year of high school. It's a lot less fluffy than Love, Simon, for sure. Um, it tackles a lot of <laughs> complex issues between the main character and his mother and his female best friend and this college guy that he's seeing on and off. And I felt so strongly represented by the movie. It really highlighted the feelings of alienation as a queer kid just existing in the world and being judged for it and wanting so badly to be older and to go to college and go off to a big city where you can be whoever you want to be. Um, and even, you know, putting yourself in situations where you're too young to understand because you don't really have anyone your age who can understand. Um, it was, it's a very sad truth about growing up gay, but I think it was important to see them portrayed in the way that they were. Um, it's not a feel-good film. Um, you know, there's no big kiss on the Ferris wheel, but <laughs> I really loved a lot of elements of it. It wasn't, like, depressing, for sure. Uh, there was a really great relationship between Eric, the main character, and Leah Delaria, who is playing sort of this queer elder who mentors him, which is... I love being part of the queer community because I feel like there are a lot of people like that in real life who are just like so loving and can take you in when you don't necessarily feel understood by your actual biological family. So I was really happy to see that depiction. And I appreciated the grittier nature of the movie because it felt true to life. Um, with that being said, I want to be able to see grittier queer stories, happier queer stories, sad queer stories, everything in between. And then, you know, I want to see the same for transgender stories and bisexual and queer POC and non-binary. So let's, you know, let's make a lot more of these. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's a good one. I 100% agree on us needing more variety and nuance in queer stories, especially ones that feature people of color. Um. I personally would love to see many more queer black stories, especially queer black girls on screen, not to be biased, but you know. <laughs> um, a film I wanted to highlight was Pariah, which is a film by the lovely Dee Rees about a young black girl trying to embrace her lesbian identity, but um, she faces some obstacles in family, friendship, and love. I think it's a really great film that is also really visually beautiful, too. And... I know a lot of people call it the girl Moonlight, though it preceded Moonlight. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it definitely deserves to be recognized as its own entity. Um, it's like, you know, you have two really good, you know, black queer stories, and then, like, automatically they're going to be compared to mm -hmm. each other because of the lack of variety that's there. Anyways, um, I just love the authenticity of the story and the realism and how, like, her parents reacted to who she was and like who they wanted her to be or like how she'd go to certain lengths to make sure that she was palatable to her mother. I liked how they showed her being grounded through poetry or how she would like find ways to show how gay she was or like that she was stud enough so she wouldn't, you know, like be caught looking stupid or like yeah. inexperienced, <laughs> you know. 
Um, so I think it's a really important film because, you know, it's not a story that we see at all, especially not for a black main character. Yeah, and anyone can enjoy that kind of story, even if you don't identify that way. It's just nice to see right. diversity on screen. It's refreshing. I mentioned Spirited Away before, but honestly, Studio Ghibli has made some of my favorite coming-of-age movies, and they're consistently so thoughtful in their representation of Japanese culture. Um, obviously, I'm not going to pretend like I discovered Studio Ghibli, but <laughs> <laughs> I do want to highlight how beautiful the stories are, both visually and emotionally. At their core, many of the movies are just really touching stories about growing into adulthood, but within you know, a magical, fantastical world. Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service is a story about a young witch who delivers goods on a broomstick, yes. But it's also a story about a girl striking out on her own to distance herself from her family and find her independence. And it's easy to write that off by saying, oh, it's a kid's film, it's about witches, it's just magic, it's fun. Especially because it's animated and the storytelling is very simplistic, which I like. I think that makes them very universal. Yeah, the love and care that goes into Studio Ghibli and all of the stories is just really fantastic. And, you know, animation being slept on, like mm. you said. This next one, because I'm picking up what you putting down, mm. is also animated. It's also animated pick. Um, I chose Persepolis. And um, it's basically just the real-life tale of Marjan Satrapi and just her growing up and leaving her home during the time of the Iranian Revolution. And it follows her, like, from a small child, and she grows up to adulthood, and she learns things like the truth about people in power versus the things that she's taught in school. And she gets to meet her radical relatives and, like, learn about communism and, like, has all these little political awakenings. And the experiences that she and the people around her go through kind of, like, further inform her beliefs and, you know, it also tackles, like, her feeling alone and, like, how she has to navigate without her family, even if it's the best thing for her. And, I mean, it still does cover a lot of things in a great comedic way, too. Um, like, her conversations with God or, like, her love of punk music and self-expression. It's just, it's really cute. And I also think it's a very empowering story. So I really recommend it. Um, but I also recommend that um, anybody who watches it would also read the graphic novel that it's based on first. Yeah, I mean, a lot of great coming-of-age stories are able to balance the the harder emotional points with the, the lighter comedic points, because that's all sort of that time in your life is, is a mix of these strong emotions, both positive and negative. Another great one is Itu Mama Tambien, the 2002 Alfonso Cuaron film about two young boys traveling through rural Mexico with an older woman. Um, it's really quite a fascinating story, um, and it's a really honest depiction of masculinity that I don't think a lot of American films even show. Um, even though the bulk of the movie does focus on their interactions with the woman and their girlfriends, um, there is this palpable sort of sexuality between the two boys that's explored briefly towards the end of the film. Um, and I wouldn't call the film queer by any means, but I think it was really refreshing to show how it can be normal and valid for young men, especially from stricter communities, to explore their sexuality and have feelings, even if they're fleeting, for other men. And watching this movie and seeing it was from 2002, I was really impressed that it was showing this, it seems, really before its time. 
and depicting sort of the fluid nature of sexuality and not singularly just focusing on a male-female relationship. Um, I was really impressed, and rightfully <laughs> so. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, and I totally could see why. Yeah, I love that film, and I also liked how it does tackle a lot of social issues faced within Mexico um, through a lot of like the visual juxtapositions and the commentaries. Um, and it's also a road trip film. And, you know, I'm a sucker for that. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm going to mention Smoke Signals next, which I didn't realize was also a road trip. Movie, <laughs> really? So, like, win-win. <laughs> um, a friend had just recently recommended this to me, so I watched it, and I thought it was really good. Um, it's about two Native American young men, Victor and Thomas, um, from Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation. And they're, like, not the best of buddies. They're kind of like frenemies, but they kind of grew up together. <laughs> and they they go on this trip to get Victor's dad's ashes. And, you know, there's a lot of revelations. There's a lot of storytelling. Yeah. And there's, you know, unpacking about identity that takes place along with, like, unpacking the complex relationship that Victor and Thomas both have with Victor's dad. And it was directed and written by Native director Chris Eyre. Um, It stars all Native actors and actresses and was shot on location, which I think is really important. And I think it's worth a look. Yeah, honestly, for me, all of these movies are easily a five on the Inclubi scale. It is so refreshing to see representation in front of and behind the camera telling coming-of-age stories because they are so significant in different ways to different cultures. The Including Movie Podcast is hosted by Dara Eleazar and me, Matthew Stiso. Our show is produced and edited by Hazel Bolivar. Our executive producer is Kathy Yee, and our theme music is made by Wadaboy. You can visit Incluvi.com to rate movies on their diversity and read reviews focused on representation in media. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Incluvi. That's I-N-C-L-U-V-I-E. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks where we will be discussing Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Land.